I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Jeffrey B. Simon, attorney and author, and uh, he is a lawyer who is uh, combating the drug epidemic. Attorney and law professor Jeffrey B. Simon recently won a historic $1.8 billion settlement against Johnson & Johnson and other pharmaceutical giants that will go towards opioid harm reduction in the state of Texas. He will share with us how they are spending this settlement money and how this model should be replicated across America in order to fund intensive harm reduction programs to combat the ongoing opioid epidemic. Standing between large corporations and the harm their self-interested policies do to American consumers, he's also focused on protecting consumer rights and giving a greater voice to the importance of this struggle. He's been recognized as a Texas super lawyer in Texas Monthly Magazine every year for over 15 years, and in 2020 was recognized as a Texas trailblazer by Texas Lawyer. Uh, Simon also hosts the popular Outside Council podcast series. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Jeffrey. Thank you for having me. I guess the key in my intro that we can start talking about is that you are interested in protecting consumer rights and giving a greater voice to the importance of the struggle of consumer rights, I guess, uh, juxtaposed against big pharma, big corporations. That's absolutely right. Uh, The cornerstone of consumer protection is in the United States Constitution, the Seventh Amendment. Uh, the Seventh Amendment is part of the original Bill of Rights, uh, ratified in 1792, and it is the right to trial by jury in any controversy of more than $20. And it is the only form in America in which a person who has been seriously harmed or cheated by a corporation much wealthier and more powerful than them can stand on equal ground with a jury who decides uh, – who is right or wrong in the nature of that dispute and what to do about it. And corporations are using their enormous uh, influence uh, politically uh, to virtually repeal that right. Uh, And uh, I am, you know, (laughs) a bit like that man in Tiananmen Square in 1989 (laughs) standing in front of the tank uh, in the hopes uh, of encouraging others to join me in the struggle to preserve that right. When you talk about that right, Jeffrey, the right to, you know, you want to save the Seventh Amendment. Why don't we hear about the Seventh Amendment? I bet if you ask any man on the street or woman, I I wonder if they would know what the Seventh Amendment is. You know, First Amendment, Second Amendment, we don't hear about those rights, but why not the Seventh Amendment? I mean, we're hearing about it from you today, but um, it's not something that most people... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, that's an extremely insightful point. And, you know, I don't have a good answer as to why we don't teach, uh, you know, elementary students and junior high students and high school students uh, a lot of things about uh, civics uh, and uh, the nature of the Bill of Rights. Uh, And to the extent we do, we never focus on the Seventh Amendment or, or the importance of it. In fact, you know, I am a professor uh, at SMU Law School, and uh, I have a lot of really smart students in my class. I teach mass tort litigation, and very few of them before the class began actually knew that the Seventh Amendment was uh, inscribed in the Bill of Rights or, or how important it was. So, uh, 
uh, unfortunately, uh, ignorance uh, is, is problematic and widespread in that respect. But certainly part of my mission is to educate others as to its importance and especially uh, how important it is if we continue to lose it. Uh, and the second season of my podcast, Outside Council, is going to focus on that issue in significant degree, as well as my upcoming book, Last Rights. So pharmacu- well, let's talk about the pharmaceutical giants also that I mentioned in the beginning of the intro. Uh, I mean, they're the, are they the big bad guys? These are the people that we have to be aware of. These are where we have to go to court, defend ourselves, uh, that are you know, it's it's big pharma that's the reason that we have had this horrific opioid epidemic. Are they the only ones responsible? Uh, I never want to say only. I mean, there are certainly uh, doctors who knowingly overprescribed opioids for economic reasons. There certainly are people uh, who uh, sold and, and, and traded these drugs uh, without uh, proper licensure and did so for economic reasons. But at the core of it, the opioid epidemic was caused by the deliberate oversupply of these addictive drugs by uh, prescription opioid manufacturers and then uh, as well as wholesale distributors and certain retailers of the opioid supply chain. In short, uh, what happened is, is that these addictive pain drugs for many decades uh, were deemed suitable only uh, for very narrow use for the intractable pain experienced uh, by people with metastatic cancer or, uh, you know, with terminal illness. And certain drug companies wanted to expand their use uh, to include patients complaining of virtually any type of persistent pain, whether it be back pain or neck pain or joint pain or what have you. And so they employed and trained large sales forces to reframe the narrative and persuade doctors and patients and medical schools that a new class of these drugs uh, had uh, been developed that were not addictive uh, and were more effective. And it was never true. In other words, it's all about the money. Is that what you're... Yes. Yes. Agreed. It's all, yeah. Yes. You know, I was talking to a doctor. This is interesting. Well, it's adding a perspective, I guess, to this, and I wanted you to comment. Uh, He's a a physician uh, at the University of Washington, in Washington State, and he also brings in the uh, psychosociological perspective of the patient uh, or of the public, that we have a perception that we should never be in pain, that that's changed over, well, over centuries, actually. And because of our, and probably particularly in America, that we, we, we should always be pain-free. So given that perspective, we're also, we get in the position of demanding these drugs, which we don't necessarily need, uh, you know, for all the reasons you just mentioned. But I, I thought that was an, an interesting kind of looking at it from an historical perspective, just adding to what you had to say, what you have to say. Well, that's, no, that's right. And yeah. And that proposition, you know, where at one time we thought of no pain, no gain to we shouldn't experience pain of any type is was part of the promotional uh, idea that uh, certain drug companies exploited. Uh, they developed in the 1990s a promotional campaign, some of them, uh, called the Fifth Vital Sign. And the idea was, is, you know, a doctor... Uh, has an absolute responsibility to determine a patient's temperature and 
blood pressure and other things that are indicators of their overall health. And the argument was, well, we're under-treating pain. And, but, of course, pain cannot be objectively measured in the way that temperature and blood pressure can. It's not how you feel about your blood pressure or your temperature. It's however it reads. On the other hand, pain is purely subjective. And so the concept was pain is whatever the patient says it is and that a doctor is not performing his or her Hippocratic Oath unless they're treating that pain so that the patient is pain-free and that the uh, best way to do that was with these opioid drugs. And the problem is is that they were over-prescribed and in much higher doses than ever before, uh, and that created an epidemic of addiction and overdoses. So, okay, and so, uh, tying into that, of course, that's the marketing campaign for the pharmaceutical companies. How do you, how right. do you, how, how, okay, and you won, I said in the beginning, $1.8 billion settlement against J&J. How can you get these companies to stop doing this? Is it all, you know, going to court and getting, uh, you know, what, a billion dollar settlement? Or are there other ways of helping to overcome this kind of, uh, I don't know what you would call it exactly, but the, uh, pharmaceutical companies making a lot of money on all of us and causing these kinds of the opioid epidemic, for instance? Well, there are two components. One is is to use the civil justice system in the way it was intended, which is to hold wrongdoers financially accountable for the harm they do. And uh, that is what we, I and my colleagues, uh, have been doing. Uh, We uh, have been prosecuting cases against several drug companies. Johnson & Johnson was one of them, uh, which uh, because uh, there was the threat of a trial by jury, those companies had to think very carefully about whether they were going to let a jury decide their fate economically. And so we have uh, executed settlements with seven different uh, opioid uh, drug companies of different types, manufacturers, distributors, uh, and so forth. Uh, in the state of Texas, now totaling a little over $1.9 billion. Uh, almost all of that money is to be used for opioid harm reduction, that is, providing addiction recovery services uh, and Narcan, the, the overdose rescue drug, uh, and educational programs uh, in lieu of having taxpayers pay for them. Obviously, their taxes shouldn't be raised to deal with all the crushing economic burden that follows from you know, the human suffering, and this uh, helps alleviate uh, that dilemma. Um, Having said that, we also need to reimagine what uh, the purpose of medical care is. Um, You know, it's supposed to be providing services, medical service um, to patients uh, so that they can live longer and live better rather than simply being a for-profit uh, business-oriented rather than patient and service-focused type industry. So, um, you know, we need to, as a society, rethink, um, at least in the area of healthcare, what is the objective? That that really is a segue into my next question because I thought you are definitely the person to ask this, but I had gone, I think it was Twitter and you had mentioned or suggested on Twitter that pharmaceutical, that the pharmaceutical industry may have some influence on preserving access to abortion pills, which would be a good thing. And that, uh, they have that opportunity to do that. Uh, so 
can you comment on the pharmaceutical companies in relation to you know the the, the ban on an abortion and abortion pills? Yeah, in the following respect, which is that the civil justice system can be used for good and for bad, uh, just like any institution in America. And here you have people who want to ban uh, abortion altogether. They want to use the power of big government to deny uh, people with unwanted pregnancies personal bodily autonomy. And irrespective of how you feel about abortion, you really should not want big government invading your personal life and having people manipulate the power of big government in order to achieve that goal. Here, you have a group of people who want to ban abortion access through pharmaceuticals, who picked a judge uh, in the panhandle of Texas, who they knew was a staunch opponent of abortion because he'd been very public about that in his previous uh, you know, career uh, pursuits. And they challenged the FDA approval of a drug that is sometimes used um, for abortion care, but is also used for other therapies that was approved 22 years earlier. You had over two decades of empirical evidence that the drug was perfectly safe for the purposes for which it had been approved. And yet they persuaded this judge, who was obviously predisposed to think so, to rule that the FDA was uh, incorrect in having approved that drug. And it was purely, in my estimation, a political power play. That is the misuse of the civil justice system, in my estimation. So what Now, drug can... companies can push back on that. And here we have common cause. We don't want drug companies that obtained FDA approval through appropriate uses, you know, channels, I should say, over 20 years later, having their FDA approval essentially challenged for purely political reasons when a drug has proven to be as safe as intended. And I join in them and their cause in pushing back against that. So what do we do or can we do any as consumers? What do we need to do, given what you just said? And I agree with you. I mean, this is. Well, that's the question. Well, you know, there, there are a number of things, but um, I would I would argue that two of them are by voting and being mindful of what the motivations of candidates really are. You know, elections are rarely won or lost based on whether a candidate promises to steadfastly protect your rights to trial by jury uh, or to push back against government interference in your personal life, but they should be. And <laughs> they only will be if we tell our lawmakers and judicial candidates uh, that we expect them not to sell us out to corporate lobbies or to gut the civil justice system for the benefit of corporate lobbies or for purity, purely ideological reasons uh, that have contempt for consumer rights. And then we need to vote like we care about those issues. 
And the other thing we can do is we can enact ethics rules as laws that require transparency and prohibit financial entanglements between judges or lawmakers. And the companies are people that can use those entanglements for influence or blackmail. Uh, you know, ultimately, for example, you know, the, the Supreme Court decided uh, that Roe versus Wade was uh, wrongly decided uh, and that there is no uh, constitutional guarantee to personal bodily autonomy. Well, you know, we would think or we would hope that the people that make that decision, right or wrong, you know, are purely objective and, you know, free from bias. Well, uh, you know, according to reports by ProPublica, you know, the billionaire Harlan Crow owns Justice Clarence Thomas's mom's house, paid for a family member to attend an elite private school, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on travel and yachting trips for Justice Thomas and his wife. Does anybody think he doesn't have influence over it? Now, I don't know where Harlan Crow is on the issue of abortion, but I do know that you do not want, A, to have those kinds of entanglements between people who may appear in their court with their <laughs> own interests. Or B, not know about them until years later, you know, when investigative reporting reveals it. Here's another question. Eli Lilly, I want you to comment on this one because uh, which is one of the, as I understand it, or what, what I've read is one of the biggest employers in Indiana. And that Indiana's pace, uh, you know, just passed this uh, newly uh, risk restrictions on abortions. And that now Eli Lilly is going to back out. And uh, they were going to build, I guess, some kind of a, a big uh, a plant there, uh, which was uh, in a couple of years, or I don't exactly know the time frame, and, and now they are, are pulling out because they say they can't provide the right kinds of, they can't, first of all, they won't be able to get the, the kinds of employees, the diverse kinds of employees that they want, uh, because they will be, you know, living in Indiana and in this, under these kinds of restrictions. So that's, it would seem to me that that's a big response from, from uh, to me, a positive response from one of the big pharmaceutical companies. Right. Abortion bans are bad for business. Persecution of transgendered people is bad for business. Persecution of same-sex couples is bad for business. And the idea that being able to discriminate against those groups is just an expression of you know, freedom of religion is, first of all, untrue. Second of all, violative of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution. But even if you don't accept those propositions as true, they are undoubtedly bad for business because they make those states inhospitable to companies that will employ large workforces, right, that include people who will have unwanted pregnancies, who will include people who are either transgendered or have transgendered people in their family or friend group. That will include people uh, who are gay. And so it is, there is something inherently antithetical to be the pro-business conservative lawmaker and then passing laws which are so self-evidently big business invasions of personal – excuse me, big com government invasions of personal lives and clearly bad for business. So if you're going to, you know, they always say, follow the money, right? And we talked a little bit about that in the beginning of our conversation. So in banning abortion, where are these people who want to ban abortion? 
are those religious beliefs or is it does it have something to do i thought about this on my walk this morning at six o'clock in the morning or is it something to do with the money is there some money to follow for is that uh so i guess i don't know how banning abortion can prove to be uh financially beneficial. I don't know the answer to that. I think the primary motivation for banning abortions is the belief, uh, which is religious in nature, uh, that life begins at conception and that at the first spark, uh, that embryo is imbued with a soul by a God that is uh, just as complete uh, and worthy uh, of protection in all respects as that of any adult person. And although I have certainly great respect for that religious point of view uh, and all people who share it, um, that is not empirical medical fact. Uh, the simple fact of the matter is a fetus at 28 or 30 weeks might be viable outside the womb given proper medical care, but, you know, an embryo or or a small fetus at six weeks is not. Medical schools don't teach their students about the anatomical existence of a soul or how to treat it. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in some respect, but the belief that it does is purely religious in nature. And while people have every right to those religious beliefs and to live their lives in observance of them, they don't have the right to impose those religious beliefs on others, because that is violative of the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause, which says that Congress shall pass no law for the establishment of religion or the prohibition of the free expression thereof. That provision which was fundamental to the formation of you know, our country, exists for the important purpose and recognition that not everybody has the same religious sentiments and some people have none, and that this is a democracy, not a theocracy. And when we pass abortion bans or bans on transgenderism, I believe the primary vote motivation is the belief that they are violative of God's law as set forth about you know, creation and Adam and Eve and separate gender roles and all that. And as I say, people have every right to believe those things, but they don't have the right to impose those beliefs on others. But that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, to me, it's a, a, a very scary uh, situation. But uh, then if if you carry this, you know, these bans, you're banning abortion based on the fact that this embryo is a, a, a I don't know what, you, a, a, a person, does that mean that the uh, father of the child is responsible legally for all the whatever happens during those nine months of pregnancy or if it were responsible for medical care of this soul or, or, you know, whatever we are calling it? Those are all really good questions. 
right? Does, does, does child support begin, you know, at the moment of conception? <laughs> yeah. Is, right, right. Is, is, is she entitled to back pay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Those are all you good get... questions, you know. That's uh, <laughs> that's the slippery uh, one slope. Thing, one thing that happened, one yeah. thing that happened in the Dallas area where I live that I thought was, you know, sort of, you know, taking this logic and pursuing it to its natural end was, yeah. uh, there was a pregnant woman who uh, was ticketed for driving in the high occupancy express lane, and she said, "How can you do that? I have a whole person." <laughs> in my uterus, <laughs> according to the state of Texas, I'm entitled to be in this place. I love that. <laughs> I have not heard that one. That, that's very funny. Well, you've answered a, lawyer, a lot of questions today. This has been great. Great interview. But And I, I probably have a lot more questions to ask you, but it, we only have a couple minutes left. So I want you to tell us, first of all, because your book is coming out. Tell us about that. Uh, just tell us where you know when it comes out and when we have access to it. And any other information about what we've been talking about today, where can we go? For? Oh, I appreciate that opportunity yeah. very much. Um, so uh, I've been a trial lawyer for 30 years uh, representing uh, people who have been seriously harmed or cheated by others, usually by large corporations, and trying to use the civil justice system for its best purposes uh, and trusting uh, my clients' cases in the hearts and minds of juries who have done a magnificent job in determining what's right. And I've written a book about the importance of the civil justice system and, in particular, the right to trial by jury, and that uh, explaining how and why uh, over the last 20 years, large corporations who have been held financially accountable for wrongdoing in the civil justice system where government regulation has failed, uh, have been using their power and influence to dismantle uh, the civil justice system and to skew laws in their favor. And the result is is that uh, we have less consumer rights now than we did when I became a lawyer 30 years ago. My three children have less rights than I did when I was born. Uh, and my book, Last Rights, uh, The Fight to Save the Seventh Amendment, is about that struggle and what we must and can do about it individually and together in ways that don't cost anybody a dime but are essential because you never know how important your right to trial by jury is until something happens that you never expected. A drunk driver crosses the median and hurts you or someone you love or someone you trusted like in business cheats you. And when you are in that circumstance and you discover that you need a lawyer and you need the opportunity to have a jury decide uh, what's true, uh, not having that opportunity because corporate lobbies have taken it away from you means there'll be no redress. You can't right that wrong. And we can restore the system of laws uh, that was uh, promised by our founders uh, to be there for us, but only if we act now and act together. Thanks so much for being on the show today. And I do look forward to reading the book. And we've been talking, or I've been talking to Jeffrey Simon, uh, attor uh, attorney at law. Thank you. Thank you. Last Rites will be out in just a few months, no later than October 1st. Thank you okay. so much. Great. Thanks, Jeffrey. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. <laughs> <laughs> 